0: Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University, whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blaxland and today we've got a triple header. I'm joined by Felicity Mulford and August Dichter, both studying a master's degree in Global Challenges. And we're also joined by Dr Bettina Peterson, the programme director of a new undergraduate degree called Leadership for Global Challenges at Swansea University. Felicity's research focuses on mass starvation as a weapon of war. August is researching state-sponsored disinformation campaigns and weaponizing the internet. And Bettina works on cooperation and global challenges addressed from local, national, and international levels, on top of being the program director for this particular degree. Felicity, August, and Bettina, welcome to Exploring Global Problems.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks
0: so much for having us, Sam. Thanks for
1: having us on the
2: podcast.
0: Well, it's great to see you all. And like I say, we've got three of you today, so we'll deal with you kind of separately and then we might talk all together at the end. So on that theme, what I'm going to do is get all of you to very briefly summarise the areas of research that you work on or your areas of expertise. So let's go with Felicity first.
2: This year, I've been mapping out when and how masturbation events fall underneath the responsibility to protect and the responsibility to protect an international norm, which was unanimously passed back in 2005 at the World Summit. And it outlines the international community's responsibility to protect vulnerable populations from mass atrocity crimes.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, August.
3: My research right now is focusing on Chinese Communist Party disinformation campaigns in Taiwan and Hong Kong. So the Chinese Communist Party targets both of those areas with very similar disinformation and one of those areas is a lot more successful at combating that disinformation. So I'm looking at what is going on in those settings to figure out why is one area doing a better job than the other.
0: Great. Two really, really fascinating areas. Bettina, I know we're not talking to you today specifically about your research, but tell us what you do anyway, because it is interesting.
1: So my background is on accommodating internal nations through federal reforms. And I've been working a lot on Canada and Belgium and the way Belgium has federalized in order to keep the country together, basically. And I looked at constitutional reform processes and negotiation processes. So what makes those negotiations more effective? How can we compromise? What kind of veto rights are demanded and how are they granted? And what does it mean for the survival or sustainability of the federal system? And after that, I've been looking more at local governments and local government cooperation as well. So it's all about when and how do governments cooperate in order to deliver public policy, in order to apply for funding, in order to make better decisions and improve, basically, their decisions for any kind of problem that transcends those local boundaries and to work together.
0: Great. Sticking with you, actually, Bettina, regular listeners to this programme are going to be very bored of me saying this, but I'm a historian and a political historian, actually. So I am uh, I'm especially interested in the fact that in some ways, your personal experiences kind of feed into your research, don't they? Because you grew up in the GDR in what we know as East Germany. So tell us about that and how that might have impacted either the research sort of areas that you concentrate on or the way in which you went into academia and sort of your career path.
1: Thank you. Well, it is quite interesting. And I think there is a way of looking at it backwards, and then you realize how much it actually has shaped the decisions you took like later on in life. So I was only as a child there in, in the GDR. So I experienced those restrictions as well as this specific culture, the things you could do and you couldn't do only as a kid. But where we lived, we lived close to the Berlin border in Potsdam. And so on my walk home basically at night, I would see border patrols and you could see areas where you weren't allowed to go into, for example. And then of course, the things you were allowed to say or I was told not to talk to a stranger very early on, not to, you know, you don't reveal anything about your private life. And as a kid, of course, you don't quite understand why you're doing these things. I was part of a pioneer organization, obviously. You just go into those things, you're socialized into all those organizations that then later on feed into political organizations of the state and the state party. But the collapse of the wall is also an opportunity where you don't see, okay, we moved to West Germany, we moved to Bavaria and you could see the differences and and the opportunities and how easier it was to do things to to enjoy life or to take decisions to go where you wanted to go uh, go into professions you wanted to go but also the different upbringing i could see that or feel that as a kid obviously um, myself and i think it has shaped me in a way that i'm i'm really interested in socialization in norms in in the way people communicate and how to make communication effective as well in this terms of, yeah, because I've experienced that there is a difference between East Germany and West Germany, and and it's still there. So even if you go there now and you talk to people, you can still feel it a bit, the way people work together or or see each other, look at each other, perceive each other, is still kind of a different political attitude and different way in which communities work.
0: Yeah, all of that's fascinating. One of the things that most interests me about the divide between the old East and West Germany, it was something I read a while ago, which is that as historians, we can learn about what things looked like. We can see what things looked like. We we can learn a lot about the different political systems. But actually, this sounds like such a small thing, but it's very revealing about the differences between the two. You don't get from history books what things smelled like. And people would say that actually East Germany smelt different to West Germany because they burnt different types of coal, but also there were all various kinds of things that actually demarcated the two as different. And I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. But do you sort of get a sense of those kind of things from or remember those certain kinds of things from your upbringing?
1: I think that that makes a bit of a difference whether you're an adult or a kid. As a kid, you don't notice certain things. You just take them for granted. And so I think when I look at pictures now, you could see the blackening of the uh, facades of the houses because of the coal burning. But as a kid, you just worried on how to get the coal oven actually started after school. So that was my experience, learning how to do this when I was the first to be back home after school. And I made a few mistakes and it was cold a few times. So it's those kind of things where you see that only retrospectively, what impact it actually has on how... Streets looked like and how cities looked like. And the transition that cities in uh, the former GDR have made is massive. So you go there now, and of course, there has to be a complete refurbishment and modernization. It took a decade and more to get there. But I go back to the city I was born in, and you basically don't recognize us anymore. But it's also because they changed street names. So, so orientation is almost lost because some of the street names, the GDR, stay changed to something more communist sounding or communist leaders, socialist leaders. And so that got reverted back to what it was historically. But because I grew up in a situation where it was more lean towards socialist figures, I don't know somebody says a street name, and I don't know where it is, even though I've walked past it multiple times.
0: So interesting. I could obviously talk about this all day, but it's not what we're here for strictly, because we're here to talk about this new Leadership for Global Challenges degree. Now, you're what we call the programme director of this, aren't you? Well, can you tell us a bit more about it?
1: So it is part of a cooperation that the university has started with Hillary Rodham Clinton and the Global Challenges programme. And based on the experiences they've made with a superb and, and really successful master program uh, it was the idea to create an undergraduate program and the idea is to focus on global challenges and that can be anything from poverty uh, to sustainable living sustainable cities climate change access to quality education or general well-being improvements and to look at it through the lens of multiple disciplines so it's an interdisciplinary program and it is the idea is to give students more skills in dealing with those problems on a either local, national or global scale. So to build that foundation through how do you make policies in different contexts? What are the current economic challenges? How do you start as an enterprise, be that a commercial enterprise or a social enterprise? How do you communicate effectively and all those things? How do you lead people? How do you manage people? But then give them the research skills as well to find solutions to those problems. And then to be that advocate, to be that person who drives change in a positive way. And that change, the ideas can improve people's lives. And so anybody out there who wants, who looks at the world and is dissatisfied with, with the state of it and wants to do something about it, that's the kind of spirit, the public oriented spirit that we would like to nurture and then facilitate with the research skills and communication skills and then create those or give students the opportunity to be those drivers for positive change. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place.
0: Yeah, the focus is, I mean, it's unashamedly on big topics, isn't it? It's on the big sort of issues, which I guess sort of dovetails quite nicely with the fact that we are doing this podcast, which is about exploring global problems, is actually different to, it's not directly connected to the global challenges stuff it sits aside, but it's a really nice kind of fusing of kind of common themes between us and what you're doing.
1: Yeah. Can I add something? Because when we think about global challenges, I think there is, the idea is always it has to be big and the impact has to be big. But actually, when we think about, and just give me an example with what's going on in Swansea quite a lot is we see the plastic pollution and there's a lot of local initiatives on beach cleans, for example. So global challenges have a local dimension. So you go on a beach clean, you collect what's basically either littered or coming back, basically what comes up on the shore, what has been in the sea for decades. And there's a lot of research done on that as well. So people then look at what are we collecting percentage-wise? What are the biggest polluting items? How much has that changed during the pandemic, for example, as well? And that can inform policy making as well. So what items maybe should be banned or what items are coming up on the shore so often or are littering the beaches in a more drastic way? And can we find replacements for those ones, for example? So you have a very local initiative actually, but the research about that might drive change. And you see it coming in terms of banning plastic straws, working on the next item, kind of finding replacements for packaging, food packaging, takeaways, et cetera. And, and so you start that slowly, you started locally and then you see legislation changing and it spills over and other countries are taking on and on. And then over time, the impact is actually more global than, but it starts locally. So when you think about global challenges, there is that link between local initiatives and big scale impact, even though you might need to start smaller, but it can build into something way bigger.
0: Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because it's something we've talked about with previous guests as well. But it's also, yeah, I think it's something I tried to articulate as well in other episodes where you know, you, sometimes for people like climate change is, is just so big, for example, whereas preserving trees in your local area is something that people care much more directly about because it affects them on a day-to-day basis. So, it's how you frame these things, but actually sometimes the local and the global are, are not so disconnected, like essentially what you're saying. I'm just repeating what you're saying in you know, less yeah, no, articulate absolutely. way. But, yeah, but I think that's it's a really important absolutely. point to bring up. Anyway, Patina, we will come back to you at the end, but I want to talk to our two kind of budding uh, emerging scholars here. And we're going to go to August first. Interestingly, you're obviously from the United States, August, but you are talking to us from there at the moment, aren't you?
3: Yes, I am from sunny Florida.
0: From Florida. Wonderful.
3: I'd love to expand on something that Patina said. Go for it. She really captured it about the program really well. Bettina said it ties in really, really well with exactly the point of our Global Challenges master's program. We are expanding our global perspectives by looking at individual countries and counties using policy and law to tell bigger stories of the problems that we're facing.
0: Absolutely. Great. So very simple question. Why this topic? Why have you chosen disinformation on the internet? What drew you to it?
3: As cliche as it sounds, the 2016 campaign in the United States drew me to it. And the name beneficiary of this program, Hillary Clinton, drew me into it. We were incredibly affected in the United States by disinformation campaigns. Our conversations were slowly changed by what we later learned to be manufactured amplification coming from other countries. But the interesting part about my research, I find is that I came here to study Russian disinformation campaigns because it did relate exactly to my experience, but I ended up realizing Chinese disinformation campaigns are a lot more fun and that's where they're at.
0: (laughs) Why sort of the pull towards China then as opposed to the initial Russia stuff?
3: My research found that Chinese disinformation campaigns align with specific foreign policy goals and Russia's were more so implemented to wreak havoc, which they do incredibly well. But I was really interested to understand how targeted disinformation campaigns create new policies in different regions.
0: Yeah. And do you think we this is just sort of a, a slight tangent here, but do we perhaps underestimate the the impact of China? I, I think, and maybe this actually goes to Bettina's point, maybe about the Cold War, that we often put Russia there as kind of the great enemy because historically we're very used to conceptualizing the Soviet Union or Russia as the kind of the Cold War enemy. But really, the big challenges that we're going to face probably in the future is is quite how powerful, how globally kind of uh, significant China is.
3: Yeah, that's really what's driving my research at the moment. You know, China is able to target the specific pro-democratic news outlets that were helping protesters in Hong Kong. And they're able to use this new legislation to specifically target pro-democracy activists. In what way? Through arrests, just this past week, Times reported that a, I think two editors-in-chiefs, I will double-check that, two editors-in-chiefs were arrested and other producers were arrested, which led to a couple pro-democracy newspapers actually shut down this past week. Mm.
0: I think I read in just doing a little bit of prep for this episode and a prep about, you know, respectively, all the work that you do, You mentioned something which I had never come across, which was this idea of or the role of comedy and the role of comedians sometimes in kind of trying to counteract things like misinformation. Can you talk about that? This is in the Chinese context, isn't it?
3: This is in the Chinese context. So like I mentioned before, my research is looking at the case study of Hong Kong versus Taiwan. And one of the tools, the policy tools that Taiwan's actually using to combat disinformation is they, they are hiring comedians to... Uh, work in their branches of government to quickly create memes that combat Chinese disinformation campaigns. And apparently, it's incredibly successful. It's able to interrupt the repetition of CCP disinformation narrative and create new narratives, partly through their very strong civil society that also helps amplify that messaging.
1: If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swans University... Visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research.
0: So do we underestimate the power of the meme then?
3: Oh, I have been on this train for a long time. I actually wanted to do my entire master's research on memes and like this idea of political communication because national embassies on Twitter are communicating through memes country to country. The amount of communication that we actually have through memes is going to be studied more and more. And it is a powerful tool.
0: And I think people like me, who were probably old before my my time and sort of, I don't know, just think memes are frivolous and childish. And maybe they are frivolous and childish. Maybe they're not very full of gravitas and weighty. But ultimately, to use a cliche, they they cut through, they matter for people, and they have an impact. Is that fair?
3: Well, yeah. When you're a child and you're getting into these arguments, those good one-liners can end a conversation and set a tone for who is walking away in that conversation of, oh, I have said something very cool and interesting.
0: Sure. Tell us just a little bit, August, about your background, because coming to this idea of comedy and memes, et cetera, it's not just random, is it? You've done some really quite cool, interesting stuff in this wider sort of comedy field.
3: Yeah. So I always like to start the story with, in high school, I ran my high school memes page. And I think that's (laughs) important because it started to give me the foundation of understanding collective action relating to political messaging and understanding larger narratives of what was actually going on in my high school and then being able to comment on it. But then from my high school memes page, I ended up creating my college satirical newspaper, which led to an amazing experience interning in late night in New York on the late night show Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. And then from there, I continued my kind of like comedy political journey uh, by getting a position as the writer's assistant for President Obama's former joke writer, John Lovett, in LA. and I'm combining these experiences to now focus partly on comedy and memes in combating disinformation.
0: I mean, that's a very cool sort of CV. We're just doing audio here, but I can see you and you're you're young and that's quite a cool thing to have done for someone your age. So you were the writer's assistant for President Obama's joke writer. Now, I know that, especially in the US, political teams are huge, aren't they? I mean, And someone like President Obama would have had lots and lots of people writing speeches for him. But that puts you relatively close to the action, doesn't it? Which is interesting in itself.
3: Yeah, I got to make a joke about Mike Pence that appeared on his podcast. So I feel really successful in that. Tell us the joke. It was so time-sensitive, specific. It was through Trump's, remember Trump's first impeachment when we were dealing with communications with Ukraine? It was all about a deal that Mike Pence had about appearing with the, so part of what I've learned about political comedy and political jokes and political narrative storytelling is we need to understand the communal language that we're talking. And a lot of times that is very time sensitive. And so that joke will not hold up even though it's only a year (laughs) on because we've already also had another presidential impeachment since then.
0: Sure. Yeah. In the UK, we've got a show called Have I Got News for You? And something I do is watch old episodes, but it does show how sort of comedy does date very quickly because you can watch year old episodes and it's just, you think, well, what's all this about? Anyway, that is a very fun side story. Just going back to the actual research then, what would you like to achieve here? What are your goals in an ideal world? What would you like to kind of do with this work?
3: My goal in this case study and through understanding disinformation and strategic narrative building is that I want to understand what makes a healthy democratic media ecosystem. Because I truly see media literacy as a public health crisis. And I think that we need to start using the tools that we have, like public broadcasting, to educate a mass public about tools and strategies to make us more active thinkers online. And I would love to get into public broadcasting in some way to explore that further.
1: If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information.
0: Just playing devil's advocate for a second, is there a problem here with almost trying to regulate social media when really social medias are platforms for people to say whatever they want on? Whereas I think there's a tension there, isn't there, between being a platform or a publisher are you somewhere that just lets people say whatever they want? Or are you a kind of publisher that regulates people saying, you know, what they should say, you know, and allowing certain people on a platform or not allowing them on? Do you find there is that tension there with certain social media?
3: Absolutely. The problem I run into my research all the time is the free speech debate, right? What is free speech and what are people allowed to say versus what is too far? And I've seen policy-wise, some countries begin to criminalize the actual posts and units of free speech, which I don't think is the right way to do this. The bigger problem I think I have with social media is the ability for platforms to connect people to ideas that they might not have been interested in on their own, like extremism. I'm just finishing up a paper on the January 6th insurrection on the United States Capitol, and one of my arguments is that manufactured amplification, echo chambers, some of the key tools disinformation employs... Actually brought people into more extremist social networks than they would have just because of the mass reach appeal social networks try to facilitate
0: mm-hmm. for me it encourages or sorry it disencourages deep thinking social media is very sudden it's very presentist it makes you think sort of in snappy quick frustratingly short term ways, whereas this is going to sound perhaps terribly, terribly snobby here, but but reading kind of long articles even or books make, make you kind of mull over things and form your opinions in a much longer term. That's an issue with social media, isn't it?
3: Yeah, people don't like to read. And that's why memes are so successful. <laughs> we got 200 characters and an image on the page. That's what someone
0: thinks. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Just before I ask you about echo chambers because I think this is really crucial you you did bring it up. Just very quickly, do you think Donald Trump should be permanently banned from Twitter? So the
3: counter argument right now is that him being banned on social media platforms is letting the public forget how absolutely crazy he is. But we almost got into a nuclear war through a Twitter exchange and and we I could be talking about Iran or North Korea or other countries in that exchange. So keep him off. I understand the problem if he does run again, because social media has kind of become a public good in the space of running for elections. And I do think if he decides to run, Twitter might reverse their ban on having him on. Or probably Facebook. Twitter's a little better. But we'll see. We'll see. I have no idea.
0: I could not ask that question, seeing as it was, sort of quite, it was quite pertinent. Anyway, we talk about echo chambers. And I think everyone knows what we mean by that, which is that people just essentially join in with conversations with people who they already agree with. And you essentially have two sides on lots of big public debates and never the twain shall meet. They sort of they, they stay very far away from one another. How do we maybe break out of that cycle, do you think? Or how do we maybe encourage people to talk to one another on social media? Because in theory, social media should be an opportunity for people who would never normally meet to maybe come into contact with one another and share ideas with one another, shouldn't it? But not if they're just constantly avoiding one another deliberately because they're in these echo chambers.
3: I think echo chambers are also intentionally created in that through my research on the January 6th insurrection in Reddit feeds, for instance, members who did not share the view that the election was actually stolen and posted that within this Reddit feed were immediately kicked out. So that echo chamber actually had conflicting opinions that were cast aside by the group. But I'm kind of of the opinion now that it's okay to exist in an echo chamber if you realize what echo chamber you exist in. And if you curate it to encompass your political interests, your leisure hobby interests, if you're actively curating your feed, then that's okay that you exist within an echo chamber. Mm.
0: I guess that's not dissimilar from, in the, I'll take a UK example that we people buy the Daily Telegraph or they buy the Guardian newspapers and they actually know when they're doing so, that they are probably reading a right of centre or a left of centre newspaper. It's, but yeah, I, I'd never thought about some of those points you just raised, which is, which is interesting.
3: One more really good point about that. Support journalism financially. If you like a news source, it is not okay just to use its free articles and then say, oh, well, I've used up my five, 10 free articles. If you read a news source enough, you hopefully should be financially supporting it, if you're able to.
0: Yeah, here. here final point, final question. What advice would you give people about social media use in general?
3: I just came up with this analogy, thinking about new strategies to talk about disinformation through this podcast. But disinformation is a lot like climate change. Both are existential threats for maintaining our ecosystems, media ecosystem or environmental ecosystem. And maybe 100 companies are responsible For the most damage, but we all have an individual role to play in making the internet a better place. Just like our carbon footprints, we have a social media footprint. And so when you are about to post, think about what you are contributing to the bigger conversation. So my advice is just to be more thoughtful about your online presence.
0: Are you optimistic that people will be more thoughtful? (laughs) (laughs)
3: No, but that's why I think that we need regulation.
0: (laughs) I read ages ago now, but I read Twitter's like foundation statement, and it now reads as so naively kind of utopian. You know, it says that people will just will just send sort of like like birds tweeting sort of lovely, beautiful song. They will just send nice ideas floating out there, and it was exactly the opposite, wasn't it? For me, again, sort of just you know with with my historians uh, hat on, from the historical perspective, I think we learned that human nature is often imperfect. And that when you give people these anonymous kind of uh, platforms and tools to do and say things, then it tends to not be nice things they say. Do you think we're being over-optimistic or positive about human nature in general? Sorry, big, big philosophical question for you there.
3: Great question. I will turn to a song by one of my favourite musical comedians. His music and comedy is also a... (laughs) great method of communication. But he Bo Burnham wrote this song recently about the internet, kind of like a circus where you can get anything that you want. And one of the lines was like, would you like to fight for civil rights or tweet a racial slur? You know, we are given the option of absolutely everything and people will go to absolutely everything because we have the option. I don't know. That's a huge question. I don't know people well enough yet.
0: Fair enough. No, I don't think I do either. Anyway, thank you. Uh, I will come back to you, August, but let's go to Felicity. Felicity, thank you uh, Thank you for being here. Sorry we haven't spoken to you, <laughs> spoke to you yet, but we've got to dedicate some time to you now. Can you tell us then just a little bit more about your research? Tell us what you're working on.
2: Yeah, so I've been mapping out when and how these masturbation events fall under the responsibility to protect. Uh, and, and masturbation and famine, I think I think the reason I'm looking at this is these are often seen as these natural occurrences and often used with, well, spoken about with biblical language or perceived as a, as a result of an environmental change. And this really makes them seem out of human agency. How that all masturbation and famine events today, they are political, they're actually preventable and they are often criminal. So when these things occur, they can be seen as like a political failure to prevent these things from happening. You know, leaders and institutions fail to respond to the risks. This is particularly shocking because we actually have really good early warning systems. Alternatively, masturbation and famine can be deliberately orchestrated further different political goals. So at the moment in Tigray, which is one of my research topics, there is a, a famine that's ongoing, and it is directly the result of government policies. Do
0: you know what, I remember myself reading about this years ago now. I guess I used to be of the opinion that when a famine happened in a country, it was largely an ecological or a climate-related thing. And then someone explained to me, I can't quite remember what the examples were, maybe it was Darfur or something like that, but it was a an example of two countries in Africa that were pretty similar in terms of their topography and their climate and everything like that, but what they had was different kind of rulers and different kind of politicians. And... And that what you're looking at here is, is almost always a political, if not a decision, then mismanagement.
2: Absolutely.
0: And sometimes a very deliberate decision or, or mismanagement. Yeah, do you think that point needs to be reinforced here, that this is far more about politics than anything else?
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the thing that's been missing. You know, even if we think about famine, you automatically think of, you know, cracked earth and hot climates. But this is totally wrong, you know. And, and to think really about a specific example when someone says famine, most people think about the Ethiopian famine of 1984. It springs straight to mind because it was harrowing. It was the first famine that was broadcast right into the homes of people using you know, new media techniques and things and, and broadcasting. However, this famine was not the result of anything natural at all. In fact, there was no drought that year. It had been fabricated by the government to cover up a counter-offensive and a border dispute with Eritrea. So there was actually an, a conflict going on. And these deaths were conflict deaths, not famine deaths, but they were deaths from hunger. So it's really tough because we, we have this image and this image remains of these people dying from cracked earth and lack of food. But it's not natural in any way. This is political. And this is continued. And now the difference is we have the data and we have the information and we're watching and we can now see. So it's time to start revealing these things, for what they are, political failures, not natural occurrences.
0: So just, I mean, we don't have to talk specifically, although we can obviously talk about an example, but just to sort of give us an idea of it. So people die sort of like en masse from starvation, and that's because food has been deliberately withheld from them, or it simply hasn't been able to get to them. And that in itself is a either part of a weapon of war or it's a, or it's a decision. I mean, just, just sort of going back to the sort of trying to work out the chain of events here as to how something happens. I mean, how do these things often start? Is it part of a broader civil war or a, or a conflict?
2: All sorts. There's no uniform situation. And if we look at different famine events spreading across history, each has a different characteristic or makeup. But I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple of examples. So right now in Tigray, aid has not been allowed to enter the region. The government has prevented aid entering. However, before the government forces withdrew from the area, the earth was scorched, which removes all ability to grow food. Any food that was there was pillaged or stolen or set on fire livestock was slaughtered so the ability to create food to make food and sustain themselves that was gone to grains cannot do that anymore and this is terrible you know people who had saved all their money and put it into new microfinance schemes well the government decided to close down the banks so they couldn't even access their savings to go to the market to buy any food that was there So there's different ways you can create a famine. And and Mark, this uh, scholar, wrote back in 2003, these are called faminogenic behaviours, different tools and different methods to create famine. And that can be through recklessness, through intent to starve, through intent to destroy food systems. There's very different ways of doing it. And it depends, you know, sometimes. So, you know, it could be that it's not actually a weapon of war, but it's a crime against humanity instead.
0: What is researching this stuff like? Because if you're just dealing on a day-to-day basis with such grim stuff, you know, really, really horrible, some of, some of the worst things that I guess it links into what I was saying to August a minute ago, but some of the worst things that people can do to one another. How, how do you do it? So how, <laughs> how, how on a day-to-day basis do you deal with it? Or is it a way of having just compartmentalise your your life and your research so that they don't blend too much into one another?
2: Compartmentalising is very important, definitely. I'd say that the pandemic is not very helpful for that because the work-home balance and spaces are now combined. And I work quite a lot on this topic. Well, an awful lot on this topic. I think the fact that it is just that outrageous makes me more determined to reveal it. So it's almost like the the horror feeds into a, a real desire to do more, actually. So it kind of fuels my research. And I, and I think, you know, these actions, they're not new. These aren't new crimes. It's just a different way of looking at these crimes. And, you know, even if you look at certain things that happened at the beginning of the last century, they, they fall within this category. But we never even thought of them as such. So, for example, Churchill, he decided that during World War II, they would send all the food to the front lines from Bengal, which left three million Bengalis to starve to death. This is a policy. They knew that it would cause starvation, but they went ahead. So it's it's nice to kind of put the historical hat on and see actually these things haven't changed. These aren't new crimes, they're old crimes that have permeated through and somehow we haven't kept up with them. The law has changed and evolved for a lot of other crimes, but there's a gap here. So I've got this like drive to do something about this because why haven't we made this more illegal? Why isn't this more known and understood by the general public? You know, there's something we need to do.
0: You mentioned a moment ago R2P, which is kind of shorthand for responsibility to protect. Now, when I was an undergraduate student, this was quite a new thing. This is sort of a new idea. So I remember studying it quite a lot. But do you want to refresh my memory and tell people a little bit more about it too, about what it is, why it started, where we're sort of at with kind of the general consensus on R2P?
2: Yeah, so, so RTP was unanimously endorsed back in 2005 at the World Summit, but it was born actually out of the atrocities of the 1990s. So we had genocides like Rwanda, Srebrenica, and it led the, uh, the Secretary General of the UN, who was Kofi Annan at that time, to call upon the international community to ask, how do we deal with these atrocities without impinging on the sovereignty of the state that they're occurring within? Because, you know, you, we can't just intervene in another state. It would breach the UN Charter. So he sent a load of experts off to try and come up with a solution. And what they did was they reimagined sovereignty. Historically, sovereignty has been absolute, you know, fixed with territorial borders. And, you know, actually, I was reading yesterday that Lansing, a former U.S. secretary of state in 1915, said that sovereignty is the absence of responsibility. But actually, this has shifted so much. In um, 2001, a report came out which said, no, sovereignty should be imagined as a responsibility to uphold the human rights of your population. Now, what this meant was, if you were no longer upholding the rights of your population, your sovereignty would not really be a question anymore. You know, people could have the right to intervene at that point. So then in 2005, they agreed upon the responsibility to protect, which is a, a principle or an international norm which outlines that in situations of genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing, if the state is unable or unwilling to protect the populations from these crimes, the international community has a responsibility to intervene to protect these populations. And I'm not talking just military. Military is the very last resort. RTP has a whole toolkit of different methods to intervene. This can be political, diplomatic, humanitarian. And all these different things form this kind of international doctrine Unfortunately, it has faced quite a lot of criticisms for failures. I mean, Libya is a, a prime example where perhaps the R two P label has been invoked and then things like regime change have happened or there's been a failure and we've seen horrific things. For example, Myanmar and no RTP, even though people on the streets of Myanmar wore T-shirts calling for the international community to intervene using RTP. We didn't see it there. So... The problem with it really is that it is just a norm; it's not law. So we are reliant on the politics of, well, the international relations, the international politics, the political will. People need to want to intervene. So that's kind of the key barrier, in a way.
0: Yeah, this is. But you're, like I say, refreshing my memory uh, from quite a long time ago now. But when this was sort of a hot debate at the beginning, and this was exactly what people were saying from from my memory then that it was either too close to. What we call liberal intervention and would lead to kind of military solutions, which kind of clash with ideas of national sovereignty, or it's just toothless and it's just kind of rhetoric and nobody does anything about it. But would you, can you identify an example of where this kind of doctrine or this idea has worked?
2: Yeah, I think the really important thing to think about this is responsibility to protect. The main body of work is about prevention. Now you can't point out a genocide that hasn't happened because it was prevented. Those examples aren't obvious, so it's really hard to hold the suffers. These you know huge successes, but there's been a number of instances where different diplomatic interventions, for example, uh, around the Kenyan elections, there was two, a lot, lot of violence. So they under RTP provided a lot of support to ensure that the elections could go ahead without large scale violence. So things like that, that you wouldn't think of as, oh, wow, preventing genocide. But actually, like we're talking earlier, the local actions actually solve the bigger problems. So it's like, how can we on, on a local basis prevent atrocity? How can we reduce hate speech? How can we do these things? So unfortunately when we speak about rtp we think of its failures because they're the most blatant but realistically there's a lot of successes that go very unnoticed underneath.
0: Yeah that's that is so interesting isn't it because sometimes if something's not happened it's a counterfactual to sort of say what would have happened if something hadn't been in place and, and interestingly you know it's called the responsibility to protect but it could be the responsibility to prevent, I suppose, as a like, like you said. Absolutely. Mm, that's so interesting. Yeah.
2: And it's quite interesting. I was listening to a podcast with the former special advisor on RTP to the Secretary General, and she was saying that the United Nations has held up against its failures of preventing atrocities. Yet most of her time working at the UN was spent trying to lobby governments and states on how important atrocity prevention is. So there's this disconnect, you know, we're happy to hold the UN up and say, wow, they failed, but we don't want to invest in the atrocity prevention.
0: Bettina, listening to these two scholars talking about what they're working on, big, big topics, fascinating approaches to them. Yeah, the future of kind of academia seems in pretty pretty safe hands, doesn't
1: it? Oh, definitely. I would say the future of how we live together. If you have people like August and Felicity who, who have that energy, the drive, and just the the willingness to invest their resources, and, and I know from them they study pretty hard and, you know, weekends and everything. If people are out there willing to do that and put themselves out there, also sticking their heads out and saying, I hold this position and I'm going to defend it and I'm going to try to persuade other people to join and be an activist and do something about one or, or all of those different global challenges, I think we're going to be in a good shape. If I have the time, I would like to pick up on something that, that August also said with the with the media literacy. I think that is so important to equip people in general, not just students, but literally everybody, with the tools to evaluate the information they find. And so if I I'm allowed to bring it back to the degree program as well. So what we're trying to do as well with the teaching of research skills is to discuss what is good evidence. How do you have to design your research to have that good evidence about what works in practice. And so it is about writing unbiased survey questions. Is it about creating experiments where you have a test group and you have a control group and things like that? But I think that will also help to then look at what is published, be that on social networks or be that as a podcast or blogs or somewhere else, wherever you find information, and be able to evaluate how well was the research done on the basis of which that blog was written. Is it unbiased? Is it objective? What's the difference between evidence and propaganda? When is it a marketing slogan? When is it self-promotion of a government? And everybody, every government has to do that kind of self-promoting, all the good things they've been doing. It's normal. But to be able to put that into perspective and take that as, or oh, it is self-promotion. It is not objective information or objective evidence for something. And if we can achieve that, if we can raise that literacy in dealing with media, dealing with social networks, dealing with the information that's out there in general, I think we are also getting a, a step further in making sure we're not fooled by things that are out there. Because as you were saying, social networks and the internet in, in general, we, we had this idea that it's going to be educating, liberating, enlightening people. And I think you said that, was it a naive perspective of Twitter uh, at the beginning? Maybe yes, but but it's the opportunity is still out there. So I wouldn't rule that out that, social networks or, or online platforms can actually educate and can be a force for good in that sense. But I think the literacy level has to keep up with the alternative, that the damage that can be done with them as well. Thank you, Petita.
3: Can I jump in on that also really quickly? Go for it. I think that we feel that way because of how the Arab Spring made us feel in the West and this opportunity for social networks to democratize. And then I think that what we can see now today, as not many of those countries that partook in the Arab Spring are actually democratised today, is that the tools can also be used to disrupt those same communications.
0: Yeah. Okay, thank you. Just last point. Can you tell me what your ambitions are for the future? And I'm thinking more personal. What do you want to do what are your plans? I mean, obviously you've got very grand ambitions in terms of how you would like to change the world without me sort of generalizing or, or sort of being a little bit hyperbolic about it. But what does the future hold for both of you? August.
3: I love content creation as I think we've hit on today, especially if that content can engage you while making you laugh and teach you something and give you some actionable item at the end. And I would love my own public broadcasting show where I can explore how to do that on a slightly larger scale?
0: Well, good luck. And what about you, Flissey?
2: I'd really like to continue researching masturbation and, and with all its facets, not just as a, as a tool of war, but you know, you know the other elements of it also. Because you know, today masturbation is shocking because it's preventable. You know, people should not be dying from hunger in a world where there's plenty of food. So if I can somehow bring my academic research into some activism and some on the ground work, that sounds Perfect
0: for me. Great. Well, wishing you all the very best for for all of those things and with your studies. Bettina, do you want to say anything else?
1: I would say these two guys are great examples of what you can be and what you can do with research in terms of it's just not only academic. You're not just writing papers or reading stuff. It is something that you can use for whatever change you want to create. And I think that's just brilliant. And that's something where I would always say, I love my job when I see students doing those things using the tools and that's just letting them drive those ideas and the energy and and do things themselves instead of just waiting for things to happen and that's where I take a lot of satisfaction from my job when I see those ideas students coming with ideas and then just you nurture them and then you just go out and change the world and that's brilliant.
0: I'd echo that it's the nicest part of teaching for me too which is when students it's in different contexts for me. when students come up with their own ideas and their own projects and they see those through it it is it is wonderful so that's a nice a nice place to end thank you the three of you very much indeed for for that chat i've learned a lot and it's been fascinating
1: thank you very much for having us
0: thanks sam thank you to find out more about the global challenges program visit the university's website to find out more about this podcast and swansea university's research visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our guests, Felicity Mulford, August Dickter, and Dr. Patina Peterson. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow. I'm Sam Blaxland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University. And that's also our last episode for this series. So thank you very much for listening and goodbye from me.